academic institutions, including Harvard, uh, um, and has published uh, articles in Harvard University Press, University of California Press, and Columbia University Press. He's fluent in seven languages and, and has translated, published, uh, publicized, and, and distributed many literatures across Central and South America, Italy, and Europe. And he's a very dedicated teacher and, and, and an erudite scholar. So we're very fortunate to welcome His Holiness Ridanandadaska Swami. He'll be speaking to us on the topic of students of today, leaders of tomorrow. Thank you so much, Maharaj. Um, all right, here we go. Uh, first of all, thank you all very much for attending, for listening. Um, the first thing that occurs to me regarding this topic of today's students, tomorrow's leaders, is that what does it mean to be a good student and what does it mean to be a good leader? And how can we, or how should we, understand the relationship between students and teachers? And so since as far as I can see, you're all adults, if you have any children with you, please uh, send them out of the room. I'm just kidding. So the so thing is that, um, I'd like to approach this from a sort of historical, socio-cultural perspective because there are certain things that are always said and so I don't think they need to be said again. And uh, I'd like to try, if I could, to get us all thinking about this uh, as follows. Um, first of all, this discussion, of course, uh, today's Students Tomorrow's Leaders is sort of morally and spiritually neutral because for example, bad societies like totalitarian regimes or oppressive or abusive regimes or organizations also have students and leaders. And so for example, I mean, to use sort of like the, uh, you say you take some regime like a Nazi regime and they had students and they had leaders and students became leaders and then you can have students and leaders in a saintly institution, like let's say the better parts of ISKCON. So, um, so we have a so that's a neutral thing. Like today's students, tomorrow's leaders. It just depends on how you do it. So that's one thing. There's a moral spectrum of being a student leader. And another point is that um, sometimes being a uh, what Prabhupada called a blind follower. Prabhupada said blind following is condemned. And so if someone is a blind follower, uh, they may actually cause more harm than good. Prabhupada once told me a joke. <laughs> Prabhupada told jokes. In 1976, when I was Prabhupada's, um, well, officially secretary, but he really didn't give me any secretarial duties. He just liked to talk to me and we would, we would discuss different things. But, um, he told me a joke once, this is an Indian joke, that uh, that sort of, it, it's, it's, a, it's a parody on certain aspects of Indian culture among certain people, sort of blind following. And so uh, obviously not all Indians, but he said in the Indian railway office, and, and back then, I don't know if you realize this, but the Indian railway office was like the, the perfection of mindless bureaucracy in terms of uh, just, 
yeah, just mindless bureaucracy, blind following. And so the joke is, this is an Indian joke told me by Prabhupada, that uh, the director, the manager of, the, of this railway office went into the bathroom and he saw one of the workers going like this. And Prabhupada, Prabhupada was making this motion. The, the worker was going like this. And so the, the, the man in charge, superintendent said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm, I'm trying to catch a fly. And, and, and so the director said, why are you trying to catch a fly? He said, because you told me whatever is in this book, you copy it exactly into that book. This is obviously very much pre-computer. So whatever's in this book, you copy in that book. So in this book, there was a fly, like pasted on the page. So I've got to get a fly to put on the page in the new book. And so Prabhupada gave this as an example of blind following. And there are other issues. I like to throw all this in here, just throw it all in and then try to sort it out. It's like a puzzle, right? First you dump the box of all the puzzle pieces, you dump it onto a surface, and then you try to put the puzzle together. So there's another issue, which is that ISKCON, you know, the I in ISKCON stands for international. And despite globalization and the sort of increasing homogenization of culture, political and social institutions and everything, it's not really, it's not really being fully homogenized. And um, so there are cultural differences. For example, what does it mean to be a faithful follower in India? What does it mean in America? What does it mean in Europe? These are all different. What does it mean in South America? And uh, for example, here are some of the variables. To what extent should a leader uh, demand uh, strict following from the follower? What are the areas where you have to follow if you are a follower? What are the areas where you have more freedom that you can, you can actually, oh, there's my old friend Rupa Vilas. You know, what, what are the areas, what are the areas where you have more freedom? So what's the definition? For example, I mean, just to be honest, there's some gurus in this who feel that if you become a disciple, then you really should not take any important decision in your life, whether it be vocational or, uh, you know, whether to get married or not, that, that really has to be, uh, you either have to consult the guru or the guru himself should decide that. And of course, on the other side of the spectrum, there are guru-disciple relationships where the guru feels that disciples should have a lot more freedom. And so there are cultural issues here. And there are the cultural issues affect not only how you interpret following, what does it mean to be a student? What does it mean to be a leader? How do you train leaders? What kind of leader do you want to produce? Do you want to uh, produce a leader that doesn't change anything or a leader that's more creative and makes adjustments and so on. And how do you, how do you instill a, a healthy spirit of creativity and independent thinking without going too far so that tomorrow's leader just actually goes off the rails. So where's the, where's the healthy middle position? And also uh, there's another issue, which I think really needs to be much better understood in ISKCON and Rupa will, uh, Brace yourself, this is my thing. But, um, and that is that, um, for example, here's my take on what it means to be a future leader. If you study the actual history of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, or let's say in larger sense, Vaishnavism, 
if you study the real history, not sort of what people imagine the history to be, even though they've never actually studied it in a serious scholarly way, they just assume that that's our history. Uh, but if you actually study it, what you find is that Vaishnav history in general, and specifically Gaudiya Vaishnav history, is actually a history of preservation and adaptation. It's not just preservation. It's not just that, okay, whatever you receive, uh, don't even think about adjusting anything. So what we find is that the great Acharyas, including Prabhupada, certainly including Rupa, including Rupa Goswami, because Rupa Goswami uh, speaks about this in chapter six of his Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. And Prabhupada, of course, faithfully translates it and explains it. Rupa Goswami says there are actually two categories of rules. It's not just, okay, these are the rules, just do it. But actually there are two categories of rules. There are basic principles, which you can't change. If you change it, so to speak, you void your spiritual warranty. It's like you buy some electronic device and it says, you know, if you open this little door here to the, you know, you void your warranty. And so those are the basic principles, like philosophic, and of course, basic principles are found to use Krishna's terminology in the Gita and the fields of Sankhya and Yoga, philosophy and practice. So philosophically, there is Siddhanta. There are fundamental principles of philosophy which we can't change. If we change them, we are simply placing ourselves outside the tradition. And then in terms of uh, uh, practice, which Krishna calls Sankhya and Yoga, you'll find these, this terminology throughout the first few chapters of the Gita. Uh, in terms of practice, we have a certain sadhana. We chant Hare Krishna, we offer our food to Krishna, we study Shastra, we have a certain praxis or a certain uh, yoga, to use the Gita's term, a spiritual practice. So again, certain principles in that praxis, certain principles of yoga, of spiritual practice, are fundamental. They're not up for renegotiation. Uh, you can't change them. That's just what we do. We chant Hare Krishna. If you say, well, I don't want to chant the Maha Mantra, I have another mantra, fine, but you are placing yourself outside uh, this particular branch of the Kodiya Vaishnava tradition, and so on. So, so those are fundamental principles. You can't change them. But there are details. There are details. For example, how we dress, uh, what kind of music we make in Kirtan, what instruments we use. Uh, what recipes we use, our cuisine, and uh, what kind of architecture we use in our temples, and so on and so forth. All of these details of what, let's say, an anthropologist or sociologist would call external culture, you could even use the word ethnicity, or so on, uh, those are details. Now, if you think that certain details are fundamental principles, or if a teacher teaches that details are fundamental principles, we lose the spiritual science. We lose the science. As I've often said, uh, that people listen to my classes probably think I've said it too often. Anyway, it's just like, um, for example, there's a, let's say there's, there's an engineering science. So we know how to build a bridge 
that won't collapse under a certain weight limit. Now, if we need a bridge for some reason, but there are no engineers around, the fact that an engineering science exists won't get us a bridge. Or if someone has a medical problem and there is a medical science to deal with it, but there are no doctors around, the existence of a medical science won't save that person's life. In the same way, there is a spiritual science, but if there are not a lot of spiritual scientists around, uh, the world's not going to be saved, and we're going to see a, a Hare Krishna movement, which outside, let's say, the Indian community, which obviously has special spiritual credits, as Lord Chaitanya and Prabhupada explained, but outside that community, we're not going to see a lot of growth. We're going to see a movement that's stagnant, that has some nice programs here and there, but it's not really, you know, as to use the old expression, setting the Thames on fire. Um, it's just not happening. And so, of course, uh, we can attribute that as we like to, because uh, although, you know, we promote individual humility, we don't really promote institutional humility. And we like to think of ourselves. So, so if somehow the world's not connecting with us, it's obviously the world's fault. And you know, those poor fools. And some devotees feel it's offensive to you know, re-examine our, our, our strategies or tactics, which is, as you know, if you've ever studied, uh, if you ever went to business school or studied, you know, sort of uh, management, you know that that's catastrophic. It's a catastrophic way to look at things that if people aren't buying our products, it's because they're fools. So we're gonna make the same product in the same package with the same kind of advertising. And if the world's too stupid to appreciate it, that's their loss. That's a very good way to, if, if you are cultivating bankruptcy, uh, that's the way to go. So again, uh, Prabhupada has given us agility Prabhupada has given us flexibility, but in the realm of details. And so if we sacralize, sort of irrationally sacralize these flexible details, so they become rigid fundamental principles. So there's a rigid fundamental principle of how a devotee should dress, what recipes they should cook with, exactly, you know, and so on and so on. Then the movement basically uh, loses its power of adaptation and whether you are a very large mammal or a religious institution, you will go extinct if you cannot adapt to your environment. You know, that's what happened to the dinosaurs. By the way, if you ever wondered why the dinosaurs aren't in the Bhagavatam, it's because, just a little footnote, I won't charge you extra for this. Uh, it, the science is that uh, the dinosaurs actually went extinct around over 60 million years ago, and the Bhagavatam is talking about much more recent history, but anyway. So, you know, adapt or go extinct is true for species of life, it's true for plants, it's true for religious movements. And history is, there, there's a whole fossil record of religious institutions that couldn't adapt. And so I hope that the ISKCON as a worldwide institution, which actually attracts significant numbers of intelligent Western people and people from other regions, I hope we're just not going to be consigned to the fossil record of non-adaptive religious institutions. So it seems to me 
in my humble opinion, you can tell that I sort of exude a certain self-effacing humility. Um, so in my view, <laughs> hey there, shut up, Bjorn. What, in my view, um, what we really need in terms of followers and leaders is uh, intelligence. Intelligence. I know, Prabhupada, I am actually doing my best, believe it or not, you know, appearances can be deceiving, but I'm actually doing my best to follow Prabhupada. And so, I mean, the first, just as Prabhupada, the first instruction he received from Bhakti Siddhanta became the, um, the mission of his life. So the first instruction I received from Prabhupada, direct instruction, became the mission of my life. I joined the Hare Krishna movement in Berkeley, California. I was a student. It was 1969. And I didn't know whether I should stay in school and finish my degree or drop out and uh, you know, do more spiritual things like sell incense in the street or, and also give out, of course, back to Godhead Magazine. So um, I wrote a letter to Prabhupada because temple president didn't know. I asked the regional secretary who was Tamal Krishna Goswami, uh, Brahmachari, Tamal Krishna Brahmachari. He didn't know. And he just said, well, ask Prabhupada. So I wrote a letter to Prabhupada. Prabhupada wrote back to me and he said, and this became the mission of my life. He said, I want you to get a good education so that you can teach Krishna consciousness to similarly educated people. Similarly, so, and Prabhupada, I mean, many times Prabhupada said, he said it to me many times. He wrote it to me in letters. We have to attract the intelligent class of people. When I actually started a program in ISKCON of getting reviews uh, for Prabhupada's books from university professors. And uh, I didn't start it, but I, but I kind of developed it into the program it became and, and putting books in libraries and, uh, and, uh, and so on, getting professors to use Prabhupada's books as textbooks. And so the BBT had this list of um, favorable reviews from professors about his books. And Prabhupada had a sheet, this is of course before digital technology, and he kept it on his desk. I was Prabhupada, with Prabhupada in Mayapur and all kinds of people were coming to see him, like humble people and the most important political and financial leaders of West Bengal, people were coming to see him. And Prabhupada had that sheet on his desk and he would you know, quote it to people, he would read from it. He really wanted everyone to know that the scholars accept us. That was very important to Prabhupada. And he want, because Prabhupada, you know, we're all equal equality now, as we know, is the new secular religion. But the point is, the point is that, you know, group identity is one thing. You say groups are equal, we won't go into that. But in terms of individuals, we're obviously not equal. And that's why everyone doesn't, doesn't go to Oxford and Cambridge and everyone's not a billionaire and and that's why, you know, everyone is not beautiful and everyone, every girl's not asked to dance all the time at the dance and some girls are. So we're, we're just, I mean, we're not equal athletically, artistically, uh, mathematically, in terms of emotional IQ. We won't go into the group identity, racial, ethnic, all that, because it's just, it, but in terms of individuals, we're not equal. And so the equality must be spiritual. That, that's an obvious point. The equality must be spiritual because it's not empirical. There is no empirical evidence that we're equal. It's a metaphysical claim, which is true. We are equal, 
but it, it's a metaphysical claim in terms of individuals. But apart from that, um, there are hierarchies. The point I mean to say is even though metaphysically, spiritually, and ethically, you could say we're equal, everyone deserves equal justice, equal respect as a soul, every living being. But apart from that, there are, there are natural hierarchies in the real world. In fact, if you look at the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Krishna stresses equality. There are many verses in the Gita that stress equality. Pandita samadarsana, samak sarveshu bhuteshu, samohang sarva bhuteshu. I mean, it's all over the Bhagavad Gita. It's all over the Bhagavad Gita. Sarva bhuta everywhere you find equality. Equality is actually a big topic. In fact, Krishna defines yoga. Krishna says the greatest yogi is the one who has universal empathy. The highest yogi is one who has universal empathy. So it's everywhere who sees that every other living being is equal to me or I'm equal to everyone else. So equality is a very big topic in the Gita, more than a lot of devotees know. It's a big topic. Read my book, Infomercial Alert. Anyway, I uh, did a copy of the Gita. You can read it all there. But wait, order one today, and I'm going, anyway, just kidding. So even though equality is a big topic, Krishna also teaches on the condition plane hierarchy. For example, Krishna teaches the Varnashram system in Bhagavad Gita. He says that he personally created the four Varnas, Chaturvarnya That means Krishna personally has given the world a hierarchical vocational system. The ashram system is, is, is hierarchical. Uh, that's why I took sannyas, because I, I never have to pay for lunch for the rest of my life. Anyway, so this, this Varnashram system is hierarchical. Krishna talks in the, in the Gita about gurus and disciples. That is hierarchical. He talks about the modes of nature. We are all, I mean, not we are, I mean, not the soul, but our conditioned lives are in the modes of nature. The three gunas are hierarchical, which means in terms of wisdom, in terms of happiness, in terms of just getting it, there's a hierarchy. So the Gita is full of hierarchies and the Gita stresses equality. And it's really when society balances hierarchy with equality that you get a healthy society. When, you know, the, the um, Plato, Plato actually, I'm gonna talk about the, Plato talks about political extremes leading to their opposites. It's sort of like the third, Newton's third law of motion but in political science uh, given by Plato. He says, for example, that anarchy leads to tyranny and tyranny leads to anarchy. He also didn't like democracy because democratic government assassinated his guru, uh, Socrates. But so then you get, uh, you, you know, with the Renaissance, you get Galileo. Galileo, who kind of coins the term pendulum effect and talks about that, the pendulum effect. And then Newton takes the pendulum effect and develops it into one of the great laws of physics. 
that a reaction produces an equal and opposite reaction. And Newton, everyone thought, well, that was really smart. So much so that, uh, let's say, 100 years after Newton, you get the great philosopher of history, Professor Hegel, who, who's, you know, whose student was kind of like this uh, cute little Asura named Karl Marx. But anyway, so you get Hegel, and then Hegel takes this pendulum effect or, or, or Newton's third law of motion, and he says, this is actually the governing principle of historical movement. This is how history moves, and he calls it the dialectic, the historical dialectic, which is the thesis, the antithesis, that, you know, it's just Newton, it's just, it's just the pendulum, it's Plato, it's, you take a thesis, a historical thesis, which is the way the world is now, and it produces its equal and opposite reaction, it produces its own contradiction, and uh, then, of course, there's a synthesis, which becomes a new thesis, so uh, the reason I'm mentioning all this is because when hierarchy is taken to an extreme, it produces its equal and opposite reaction, which is sort of like a fanatical emphasis that everyone's exactly the same. And, and if tests show or not, the tests are evil. So now, anyway, so I won't get into all that, the politics of all that, but it's, but so, so these extremes where everyone's just the same and you, you demolish every hierarchy, so there is no higher culture, there is no higher wisdom, everyone has their own truth, which is actually kind of clinical madness. Because if everyone has their own truth, but everyone, but you impose upon everyone the truth that everyone has their own truth. And it's this, this whole subjectivity movement, because it's interesting in the name of sort of democratizing reality, since many people hold views which cannot be verified and which obviously are actually incorrect, therefore you have to reduce philosophy to psychology. And if you think something is true, then it is true. And to say something is true is only to say that someone believes it. It's the subjectivity movement. Although what we find is historically that all the people that, that push this postmodern philosophy tended to be radical leftists in their political thinking and they insisted that leftist political views are not relative and they're true for everyone. So there's all kinds of hypocrisy going on. But getting back to the topic, getting back to the topic of, of, of leaders and followers, it seems to me that a good leader has to balance equality with hierarchy. For example, uh, I am a bona fide guru, and uh, you know we're offering special low rates this month. So contact me. But <laughs> just kidding, you gotta laugh at everything. I mean, you, you can't take things too seriously. So, um, so the idea here is that uh, there are certain things that my disciples, to be good disciples, they should really follow. Like Krishna is God. Like we're not our body. Prabhupada you know, is our leader, we should work within Prabhupada's institution and a bunch of other things. So those things I don't compromise on. Of course, you know, it's a free world. People can do what they want, but they're not gonna be in good standing. So, so that's hierarchical, where I know something you don't know because I've been in the movement longer. So, so that's the hierarchical part of it, where a guru has to teach. But at the same time, um, and, and you find this, for example, in, in the Acharyas, like, like in uh, 
Latino talkers writing that that the the first qualification in a sense of a leader of a guru is that a real guru doesn't think I'm better than my disciples. I mean, of course, it's just like, let's say parents have a child. So obviously you have to be the parent. You have to take care of the child. You have to teach the child and protect the child. The child can't do whatever it wants. But at a deeper level, in terms of existential worth, existential value, parents don't think that I'm more important than my child. In fact, it's the opposite. They make many sacrifices for the good of the child. They actually privilege the welfare of the child above their own. So you can fulfill your duty within a hierarchical system by being a guru or, or some other kind of leader. But at the same time, if in, let's say, if in, in, in my heart or in my mind, I really think I'm better. I really think not only a sense that I know more because I've been doing this longer, but that I'm somehow just more valuable as a soul. I'm, you know, I'm above you. It means the guru is the bodily concept of life, in a sense, because it's just like parents. If the parents lord it over their own child, if parents, parents who sacrifice the welfare of their child for their own good because they think I'm more important. For example, we have massive social science evidence that broken homes are very bad. In fact, over 90% of the people in prison come from both broken homes. There is a much, much higher suicide rate among people that come from broken homes. So they commit more crimes, they kill themselves more. There's a much higher rate of mental illness among people from broken homes. So we have massive evidence that, um, you know, if you get married to somebody and have children, do everything humanly possible just to keep it together, if possible. And yet people whimsically get divorced or they separate or they never marry in the first place. Why? Because they are only too willing to sacrifice their children for their own gratification. I mean, after all, if they're willing to kill their children, you know, they call it pro-life. It's just, it's really pro-infanticide. I mean, I mean, pro-choice. It's pro-infanticide is what the real name is. And I, I gave a talk on this in which I deconstruct the arguments in favor of abortion, the arguments against, let's say, our position, and I show that they don't work logically. They're just logically bad arguments. And so um, that's available free online. So uh, it's, it's like, you know, it's just, it, it's like the hook, you know, to get you in, and then after that, you pay for everything. That's a joke. So, um, so the point is, if people are willing to kill their own children because I want more money, I want this, I want that, they're willing to kill their own children just for their personal gratification. I mean, if they're willing to do that, then divorce is a, that, that's a no-brainer. That's, that's easy. Of course I get divorced. Of course, my children will be happy if I'm happy, even if I'm divorced. And of course, all the social science says in most of the cases, no, that's not true. So um, I mention that because if you're a guru or if you're a leader, of course, you have to do your job. You have to guide. You have to act as an authority. I'm not saying you just, you know, we're all the same administratively, but you never think you're better than the other person. And your goal is that to, to raise either a child or a, or a disciple or a devotee in your project 
who not only follows the basic principles, but who is intelligent, who can think. This is a direct quote from Prabhupada that this, this Hare Krishna movement, this gone, is to make devotees independently thoughtful. This is Prabhupada speaking. Independently thoughtful. Prabhupada was against what he called bureaucracy. He said, like, one person makes the decisions and everybody else, you know, you don't think you are in a particular place in the hierarchy that, you know, thinking is not part of your uh, job description for the next 20 years or something. Uh, Prabhupada strongly encouraged creativity, independence within reasonable limits. Obviously, if someone demands more freedom than they can handle, if they demand it too soon, they're just going to ruin their own life and, and damage other people. For example, a, a young person may want to get a driver's license, but you have to know how to drive and not be crazy. Well, that's uh, so. So you have to you have to be mature enough not to demand more freedom than you're actually able to handle wisely. But still, the purpose of a leader in ISKCON, according to Prabhupada, is to help the people under him or her to become independently thoughtful, not just a carbon copy of yourself, a mindless carbon copy, but to become independently thoughtful and not just to always be dependent. A parent that always wants the children to be emotionally dependent, like can't let go of the child, that's a bad parent. And we should, in ISKCON, we should not be trying to produce followers, we should be trying to produce leaders. And of course, leader means they were a good follower, but, and so what are we doing? Look at our structures. If we are incapable of respectful, fair-minded self-criticism, uh, we are up the Viraja River without a paddle. So, again, things to be done with courtesy, with Vaishnav etiquette, without envy, respectfully, but it should be done. But it should be done. We shouldn't just uh, live, in, anyway. So that to me is a leader. A leader is one who can create leaders. A leader that doesn't create lots of other leaders is not a good leader. A leader that just creates followers but doesn't create leaders is really needs to think more about it. That's my view. It doesn't, so, um, okay, after all those remarks, I, uh, now that I've uh, spoken in such a way that you will never want to hear from me again or never invite me back. But so at this point, perhaps we can take questions. Have I spoken for 40 minutes? Almost. Wow, really moving along here. Again, we should be respectful. We should be courteous. We should do our duty. I, this is not a you know cry for anarchy or uh, repudiating you know the authority structure of ISKCON. I'm simply saying there has to be an authority structure, but it should be gauged to creating leaders, people who can think for themselves and adjust. For example, many of you are younger than me. I mean, you're younger than me. I know you might not have thought you were, but but actually you are. So so the point is that you know a lot of things that I don't know about what's going on in the world because you get to a certain age if you're a devotee, you just don't want to know about the world. But I mean, I know about what's going on politically and economically and all that stuff. But as far as young people, I mean, you know, and I don't know. And so it's really this collaboration. 
We need leaders. That's my message to you. We need leaders who are respectful, who are Krishna conscious, who aren't anarchists, but at the same time, who can create programs. We need people to create successful programs. So perhaps we can open this up for questions. Thank you so much, uh, Ridananda. Thanks for, for a very uh, insightful um, start to this discussion. A, a few questions have, have come in. I just had a question from um, uh, that, that I got, if, if it's okay to start off with. Um, how do you balance hierarchy and ensure that there is an exploitation that takes place within that? Yeah. Uh, of course, there can be benevolent exploitation, but it can still damage people. I would say the extent to which leaders are looking for followers, I mean, obviously we're all looking in our preach, we're looking for people that want to come and take seriously what we're telling them. So when I say not looking for followers, I mean, of course we want them to follow our principles. Of course we want to take seriously what we're telling them, but our end goal, the ultimate goal is for them to be a leader. So I would say a leader who is not doing everything possible everything possible to help someone else to become autonomous, independent, and a leader is actually not, is, uh, I don't want to use too strong a word here, is not guiding that person properly. I mean, I could use much heavier words, but I'll, you know, I'll play nice. So, and, and there are people, like, I mean, there are, there are leaders like that. There are, there are leaders who want to really control the lives of the people under them more than necessary. And, uh, and you could say that maybe there's leaders that don't control enough, but so I think that, um, yeah, the, the, our goal is to create leaders. So, so you have to know. Now, now one thing is interesting, you see, if I can just, you know, treat you like adults, I hope that's okay. There's, um, if you look at human society, if you look at religious societies, there or just societies in general, well, I do give one example which has nothing to do with us directly. And that is if you look at the sort of the sociological meanderings of Middle Eastern culture, you have, because, because of the desert climate in many places, you have these, um, uh, nomadic peoples, nomadic peoples. And so it's, it's, I mean, sociologically, when you don't live in one place, you just kind of go to different places and you sort of take what you can get, move on to the next place. And you don't really have place loyalty and you don't, you don't develop large scale structures. And so, I mean, we found this, and so there was this, always this tension between Bedouins who are nomadic or semi-nomadic and then the settled people of the great cities like Baghdad or, or you know, certain Persian cities or so on, or cities on the Mediterranean coast. So in the same way in ISKCON, in the early days of ISKCON, there was this terrible conflict. I mean, Rupa will remember this and, and Shurabihari between traveling Sankirtan parties and temples. I mean, Tamal Krishna Goswami ended up in China because of it. And so, um, because, you know, the Sankirtan devotees, the Saffron army, they're in vans traveling around. They go to the temples, everyone's sitting around having their halava and hot milk and everything. And what, you only do like three hours a day of Sankirtan? You know, you, and 
because just a fact when you live in a place that you know you tend to sort of I don't know things you acquire property if you you know the longer you live in a place the more stuff you have and there's more duties when you get on the road they even did tests like that they um they would take sankirtan they actually did experiments they would take sankirtan devotees like back in 71 72 and they would have them stay at temple and sell books and then go out on the road and they always sold more books on the road at the same time the people on the road needed the stability of a temple the fact that when there is a temple you have stability you have structure the deity worship is going on and you can eat properly and you can actually take a proper shower every night and you can associate because you have more people in one place you can't have a lot of book distributors in the same place because you know you'll burn out the area and so and so society is really a balance between these two things between these two things but but so having said that, my observation has been that when you get leaders, they can be grihastas or they can be sannyasis, who are very strongly identified with one place, who are very strongly either, either you know, like let's say you're a householder and you have a family, so you, you can't really travel very much, or you have a job even, but you're also a temple president or a leader or a GBC, or let's say you're a sannyasi, but you're a kshetra sannyasi, you decide I'm just gonna stay in this place and develop this one project. Now, the point here is that uh, it's almost, there's a sense in which inverts the economy in the, it, it inverts the, the economy of the travelers and the people that stay, because in terms of economically, when you stay in one place, uh, you can develop large scale economies, you know, the agrarian revolution, you can store food, you can have a larger society, division of labor. Whereas if you're a hunting gathering group, you can't have large groups. You can't, you can't, um, you can't accumulate because you're traveling. You don't have a division of labor. But there's there's a there's another side. It's like a double-edged sword because what I've seen is that leaders, whether they're grihasters or sannyasis, that all that sort of tend to stay in one place. There's not that much authority to go around. So let's say I'm the leader in a place, sannyasi. This is not this is not uh, an ashram attack here. You know, attacking you know, sannyasi is attacking griyastas. So let's say I'm a leader in one place, and I just live in one place, and I have a vision. This is what I want to happen. Let's say you live in my community. You have a different vision. Uh, tough pakoras, because my vision. This is my project. It's my vision, and so if you have a different vision. Uh, you either have to just, you know, shut up and, 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 and take my vision or you have to leave. And so often what we find in this kind of people leave not under the best circumstances. They just, they just leave and they, they felt they didn't get a chance. Now, on the other hand, let's say you're a sannyasi or a householder or vanaprastha who's a leader but's traveling. That's the lifestyle you have. You need more leaders. By the very fact that you're traveling, you can't manage everything. Although sometimes they try and it's a mess, but you can't really manage everything. And so therefore you desperately need leaders because you're moving. You can't you know, fully manage any one project. And that's why Prabhupada, there was a very heavy letter. When I took sannyas in 19, I hope you don't mind I'm telling you like adult stuff. This sort of, anyway, so in 1972, when I took sannyas, um, Prabhupada, I kind of 
gate crashed a sannyasa ceremony that was already planned. But um, the reason Prabhupada was giving sannyasa, I remember that very well, because it was 1972 and he was in LA and he wrote a letter, or maybe he hadn't come, he was on his way to LA, and he wrote a letter to all the leaders because there was no internet or, you know, I mean, he probably, we just write snail mail, probably just write a letter to secretary, would literally mail it to every ISKCON center. I mean, no wonder the uh, postal industry declined when we, but anyway, we stopped doing that. So, so Prabhupada criticized the GBC. I remember this very well. He, not every, he said that too many of you, instead of leading the preaching, the GBCs, instead of leading the preaching, traveling around and developing things here and there, he's, these were his words, I remember very well. He said, you sit behind your desk and you manage the eating and sleeping. In other words, bills are paid and the lights are on. And of course the deity worship is going on. And Prabhupada envisioned a leader in ISKCON, not as a manager. I mean, of course, there's certain, obviously, there are GBCs, the ultimate managing authority, and the GBC has to make sure the management goes properly. That goes without saying. At the same time, because if a preacher is traveling, you desperately need other people to be leaders, other people to take responsibility. Whereas if you're, one, if you're, if you're always in the same place, it's threatening to have someone that has their own ideas that you don't agree with or that wants more and more responsibility. You get the Indra syndrome where Indra's afraid someone's gonna take his position. So he sends the, uh, you know, the, uh, what do they call it? The Apsara hit team. You know, Indra takes out a contract on a yogi and to use mafia language, sends out the Apsaras and the rest is history. So, so therefore I think that the more ISKCON becomes a sedentary movement, the more you don't have you know, important leaders. Now, uh, there are leaders who do, there are leaders who travel. I mean, Radhana Swami comes to mind is a good example, who, you know, preachers who travel and therefore develop projects in various places. So I think we have to, as adults, hopefully, I hope even, you know, even if you, you're not a big leader in this kind, you can still be a mental adult. And so what we need to do is um, to look at our own social dynamics. You know, we always hear this thing about we have to train up the next generation of leaders, and therefore they have a college and everything. And anyway, I won't give my opinion on the way some of these things are done. But the point is that the whole, what is the dynamic? If you look at the leader follower dynamic, that has a huge effect on to what extent you're able to create a new generation of leaders we're not just carbon copies because by definition, the world is, is changing so quickly now in the digital age that it's a given. It is a given that by the time your generation becomes the big leaders, it'll be a different world. And so let's say you're working under me and I've trained you in a way just to sort of blindly follow what I do. And I don't like you thinking, you know, I don't really want you thinking too much. I need you just doing what I say. Then it follows necessarily that by the time you become a big leader, you will not be a good leader because you'll be trying to apply principles, some of them, the details, which are no longer relevant. And so that is, of course, if you change the basic principles, then everything's lost. Everything's lost and it's not, it's not Prabhupada's movement anymore. 
So there's danger on both sides. But if we emphasize too much blind following, which Prabhupada said is condemned, then we are just creating systematic obsolescence. We are destroying ISKCON's ability to rapidly respond to changes in the world. It's like a body that just, you know, loses its agility. And so are we actually training people to be very strong in our basic principles, which can't be changed at the same time, systematically teaching agility, creativity within the boundaries of the basic principles. So is that what it, do ISKCON's leaders systematically emphasize and teach agility, adaptation, or is it more just do what I say? Are we, anyway, so I'm not gonna presume to answer that, but it's, but those are the right, that's the right question. You know, you're adults, that's, those are the right questions. So more questions in their chat. Oh, how do I see, oh, oh, I see your chat, okay. I'm, Thank you. Sorry, Mark, if we can maybe just unmute Josh, I think he had a, a good question. Oh, sure, of course. To ask. Where's good old Josh? Hare Krishna Maharaj, thanks for your talk. Hare Krishna. Um, so yeah, I, I had a question on the uh, the Vedic society or the Varnashram system that you mentioned. So yes. why is the Vedic society created in such a hierarchical way? Couldn't it because 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 the, because the system follows nature. It's not a system trying to bend nature or trying to you know force nature. It's a system that follows nature. Sure. So why would why is nature? So inherently hierarchical then. <laughs> it's good. Please don't ask smart questions. Just ask questions that make me look really good. And anyway, so uh, nature is like that because uh, because souls have free will. And so, so you could say, did Krishna create the world in such a way that in the exercise of our free will? our choices tend to be categorical. But I, I would say that a totally non-categorical world would just be madness. For example, there, there, there's a, uh, there are hierarchies in nature. There are, you know, food chains. There's a hierarchy, you know, the, uh, like those funny cartoons where the fish swallows a smaller fish and a bigger fish swallows that fish. And so, uh, if you take, look at it from Krishna's point of view, you know, an engineering issue he has to deal with. From Krishna's point of view, he is preserving the free will. This is like Bruce Almighty. He's preserving the free will of souls. And in order to have a world, you can't have a world in which every event is absolutely different from every other event. Every creature is absolutely different because human reason, just the ability to reason, the ability to understand the, 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 the primeval function of buddhi depends on two things. Among other things, it depends on the power to categorize and the power to track and analyze causal chains. Obviously, let's say you're a zoologist. If you cannot come up with the category horse, 
or dog or mammal. If you, your brain just can't come up with those categories, forget science. And in fact, the study of causal chains, let's say you look at a particular, it could be at a, you know, it could be at a quantum level, it could be at a, you know, at a, at a biological level, it could be at any level you want. But if you look at an instance of causality, then if you can't categorize, okay, what, in what category was the cause and what kind of category is the effect, all you know is I just saw something do that to something else. And that knowledge you could not transfer to any other event in the universe. So the ability to categorize and the ability to track categorical causality are preconditions for a rational or scientific understanding of anything. Otherwise, it would just be sheer madness. And so if you understand that categorical causality is necessary just not to be a completely insane freak, then Krishna also creates human society in which we can track categories and, and so on. And so therefore, for example, there are, there are Varna categories, there are Ashram categories. And if you look at the free choices that souls make, because even though these categories are there and you could say because they're natural in that sense are imposed, but they do not actually impede free choices. The mere existence, if I say that you, let's say for example, you have to get a job. You're in a situation where you need uh, paid employment. And there are many jobs out there. So you can choose the job you want, but there are, you know, there's not an infinite number of jobs. And let's say you're artistic or you're mathematical or you are uh, entrepreneurial or you're intellectual or whatever you are, there's a job for you. It may not be everything you ever wanted, but it, it satisfactorily fits your nature. And so therefore, the fact that Krishna imposes these categories, I would say, does not mean, does not constitute a significant interference in our free will. It just makes life sane and coherent and functional. Uh, could I add on to that, Krishna? Uh, if you put another coin in the... <laughs> Uh, so yeah, thank you for your answer, first of all. Um, so if there needs to be a category of existence within society, what's wrong with a differentiated categorical existence, but without... Give an hierarchy? example of what you mean. Like... Um, this is say, good. Josh is good. These are good questions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, it's hard to come up with an example because in nature you never get them, but... Um, say if the the world was made of uh, just high level occupations and say all the low level occupations were automated well then you get a world where you'd have differentiate differentiated occupations so different categories but they would there wouldn't necessarily be a hierarchy amongst them okay uh that is something which is not going to happen because the hierarchy precedes the social structure. In other words, 
like in America where they talk, you talk about democracy, democracy and equality, but the fact is there is a hierarchy of brain states. You know, there's, there are people who are very smart, less smart, less smart people who are more talented. I remember when I was a kid in school, I remember being like six years old and, you know, we had to draw pictures. And I remember there was one kid next to me and he was really good. And, and I thought, how does he do that? You know, he was, so to speak, a born artist. And if you understand karma, then you understand we bring stuff to this world. In terms of the old nature nurture debate, it's both. And so therefore, so maybe you could have like this sort of dystopian scenario where let's say the smartest people in the world get all this power, they realize they don't need the dumb people or the less intelligent people. And therefore they just, you know, they do sort of selective, what they feel is rational genocide because they've invented all these machines. They don't need all these people, they're just mouths to feed. And, um, and actually, see that's why environmentalism by itself will never save the world because consider this, before the industrial revolution before the industrial revolution, you basically had an organic planet. And yet there was just an incredible amount of atrocities, cruelty, just horrible things, torture, murder in, in an organic world. So I would argue that actually our moral instincts and even Kant who got so many things wrong, even the philosopher Kant I think understands we have certain fundamental intuitions. And therefore, if you talk about nature, there's also there are also moral hierarchies. That's why some people care about other people and some people don't. And so um, if you talk about a society where, where the very talented people kind of eliminate everyone else, then uh, that would just be genocide. And it would violate all kinds of moral laws and it would violate the moral instincts of most people. So that's just like asking what if evil people gain control? And I think the response is that we would have to oppose them by playing our cartels very loudly in their direction. Just joking, sorry. Anyway, so. <laughs> but did you have another aspect of that question or? Uh, um, I think that was uh, that's pretty good. Thank you. Yeah, perfect answer. Um, so yeah, that's perfect. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Maharaj. My pleasure. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. We have someone else there that wants to unmute. Maybe this can be the the final question. Um, just a bit wary of time. I just got a got a question in in right now. I guess in in any society or or um, professional uh, institution, you may have um, situations where youth might be discouraged uh, to become leaders due to bureaucracy. Uh, and how does one then kind of persevere in their pursuit to enhance their or use their abilities to the best? possible way through leadership if, if one isn't encouraged to do so? Oh, maybe I could just tack on to your question because someone asked, uh, and then I'll try to deal with them together. Prabhupada said it requires intelligence to distinguish between details and principles. Not everyone will agree on which is which. I think it's pretty simple. Uh, I publish papers in which I prove 
that, for example, in certain topics, Prabhupada clearly indicates things are details. I really don't believe it's that hard. And I believe that anyone, if someone can read my papers and, and, and then, you know, try to refute them, we can have a rational debate, but I'm, I don't think it's that difficult. So I'm sorry. So to just repeat yours again, I, I just snuck that in. I just cheated you. So just, just, if you don't mind, just very quickly say yours again. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in, I guess in any, you know, community or society or, or professional, um, uh, profession, excuse me, uh, you may have situations where you have leaders who don't necessarily want to pass on the baton, for example, right. um, and, and therefore, um, uh, and, you know, people who, who are younger and have desire to, to be able to um, work to the best of their capacity might feel constrained. So, so what to do in that type of situation? I think that, well, I, in the real world, what can happen is that, um, for example, I started a project, which, uh, you know, Krishna West, which is, uh, some people think is greatest thing since butter chapatis and some people think is the anti-Krishna, you know, kind of reared its demonic head in this world. But, but I think that um, Prabhupada gave a solution. And that is one time, I'll tell you a little Prabhupada story, which I think kind of gets at the answer to your question. Uh, in 1974, Prabhupada sent me to be GBC of Latin America. I was the third, per, third devotee named as GBC of Latin America, the first one that actually went there. And so, so Latin America was kind of off everybody's radar. It was just kind of like, it's almost like if you like going to another planet in ISKCON in those days, because no one, it just was so far outside the ISKCON consciousness. And so it grew really quickly. It was like, like, like this miraculous thing. And, and so much so that it went from very little to by 1975, I think, in December. And back in those days, the December book marathon was like the Super Bowl, uh, the World Cup, and everything else put together. It was like the great event for ISKCON. And so Latin America, my zone, suddenly overwhelmed every other zone and was a world champion of book distribution and no one knew where it came from. And uh, Rada Damodar, that was the first time anyone ever defeated the Rada Damodar party in December. And so as it turned out, in January, Prabhupada came to Los Angeles. So I went to LA to see Prabhupada and Tamal Krishna Goswami, who always won. And for the first time, you know, we won. In fact, he called me on the phone. He was so competitive. I remember in the middle of the marathon, I was in Mexico City. He called me on the phone and said, you're not gonna win. There's no way you're gonna win. Don't even trying to kind of psych me out, but we won anyway. He was a great devotee. So we both went to see Prabhupada and we were walking with Prabhupada on the Palisades, the cliffs over the Santa Monica Bay. And um, Prabhupada was really happy about the book distribution. And so he was kind of, uh, it's like teasing Tamal. He was teasing Tamal because Tamal never lost. And so he, uh, he said sort of Prabhupada, you know, in his own words, he said like, Hey, you're gonna take that? You know, he beat you. What are you gonna do about that? And so, and so then Tamal and I, you know, we were all laughing because it was all in good fun. But then Prabhupada, I mean, I think he stopped. And uh, when Prabhupada wanted to really make a point, he would stop on his walk and he'd put his cane down and really like he would really drill down on something. But so then Prabhupada looked at us and he said, "I'll never." And I never forgot those words. He said, "I like this competition." I like this competition. Because he saw that Tamal and I were friends, brothers, and, and yet because of the competition we were doing. So I say, 
let's have real competition. I'm happy to report to you that in many places in the world, Krishna West is growing very quickly. This is not a, uh, I'm not trying to sell you something. I'm just giving it as an example that I think that ISKCON should be a place where adult devotees are not just sort of bashed, you know, by, by just sort of heaping guilt on them and forced to stay in a particular place or service or project, because if you don't, you know, Krishna hates you and Prabhupada hates you and your guru hates you and everything. I, I think that a healthy amount, I'm not talking about poaching and stealing, but a healthy amount of competition is really good. I think the more leaders know that if you don't keep your devotees happy, they may go elsewhere. That if you don't uh, give them opportunities, if you've got a devotee who's creative, who's intelligent, and, and, and you don't give that person an opportunity, whether it's a woman or a man, for example, half of, of course, Bhaktivedanta Manor now has Vishaka, that was really good. Half the leaders of Krishna West are ladies. So I think competition in, in not malicious, not, uh, you know, with a mundane spirit, but with love and trust, I think competition is good. I think competition is good because it may force certain leaders to actually show more respect to the people in their projects. And of course, there are, of course, many good leaders in ISKCON. I'm not saying all the leaders of ISKCON are not good leaders, but I think some leaders may, they may, um, so sometimes what happens is that, 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 that if someone's being treated, just being given more opportunity somewhere else, they may go to that place. What if you have to compete like a good corporation? Let's say you're in Silicon Valley and you want to retain some, you know, some genius. You've got to somehow make them happy there. And that improves working conditions. So again, I'm not advocating chaos. I'm not advocating poaching or stealing devotees. But I think that if there's competition and people have a choice, and because Prabhupada said it's voluntary, if devotees are serving in a particular project, because that in project inspires them, they believe in it, the leaders are inspiring them, rather than just you know giving people this heavy theological guilt trip, that if you don't do exactly what I say, if you actually go where you have more opportunity, then you're betraying everything that's sacred, you're destroying your spiritual life, you're blah, you're this, you're that, you're the other thing. So a healthy amount of competition, I believe, will improve certain conditions uh, in ISKCON. So I guess we, there are a lot more questions, but I guess we've run out of time. Uh, so if uh, I'd like to apologize to those who didn't get their questions answered. And uh, what you can do is uh, you can write to me and uh, I will try to address your questions. But uh, so, is that it? That, that appears it. Thank you so much, Vridhananda Maharaj, for your time. We're really, really grateful to be able to uh, co-host you, I guess, <laughs> and, and, you know, with the Casey Salt community here in, in the United Kingdom. Thank you to Ananda Leela as well for all of your help in, in the organization. Um, and Yes, uh, Marge, what's the best way then for people to get in touch with you but by email, you said? Oh, um, I can put my email on the chat here. Uh, there it is, so. Perfect, thank you so much. And thank you to everyone yeah, for joining. Very much. Yeah, I really appreciate you all uh, taking your time to listen and ask questions. That's, um, 
Prabhupada always said that the young generation is the future hope. So really the world's in your hands. I mean, people like me will be, uh, you know, we'll be getting our little angel wings and flying off. But um, so the, really the world's in your hands. The world really depends on you. So I hope that so I'm, I, I hope you will just uh, rise to the occasion for Prabhupada. Thank you so much, Rudan Maharaj. And lots of food for thought from today's session. Uh, thank you everyone for joining. Uh, we shall see you all at the next session. Take care. Hare Krishna.